This is one in a series of podcasts as part of our AHRC-funded project on Kleist Education and Violence. And with me is Dr. Sean Allen from the University of Warwick and I'm Ricarda Schmidt, University of Exeter. Today we will be discussing Kleist's story Michael Kohlhaas. An initial fragment was published in the June edition of Kleist's journal Phoebus in 1808 and the first full publication appeared in the volume of his Erzählung and his stories in 1810. The conception is thought to date back to Kleist's time in Königsberg in 1805-6. The story is perhaps Kleist's most famous prose work. It belongs to the canon of both German and world literature. It is a work which continues to fascinate and trouble readers to the present day. Sean, could you perhaps give a brief overview of the plot? Basically, the novella tells the story of Michael Kohlhaas, a 16th century horse trader, who, when he's denied justice, decides to take the law into his own hands. He's forced to hand over some of his horses by way of a surety at a recently established toll gate. And when he returns to collect his two black horses from the Junkers estate, he finds that they've been maltreated. All his efforts to seek financial compensation via the regular legal channels come to nothing. And when his wife, Lisbeth, goes in person to present his petition to the local governor, she becomes involved in a fatal accident. And I think this marks effectively the turning point in the novella because it prompts Kohlhaas to ever despair of ever achieving justice through the courts. And as a result, he assembles a group of men and takes the law into his own hands, pursuing his enemy, the Junker, throughout Saxony and demanding that he be handed over to him by those offering him shelter. And it's only really when the Protestant reformer Martin Luther intervenes that Kohlhaas agrees to an amnesty and lays down his weapons and refers his case to the courts once again. But what he discovers is that he's been tricked by the administration in Saxony and he's condemned to a humiliating death. But there's another twist to the story because it's, his case is reopened by the elector of Brandenburg and that leads to the restitution of his horses. Nonetheless, this quest for justice comes at a price because at the end of the story, Kohlhaas is condemned to death for his earlier acts of insurrection. And I think the question of just how we're to evaluate that ending and the central character, Kohlhaas himself, these are issues that I think Kleist's readers have grappled with ever since the story was first published. Arguably, this is the first story in world literature describing the making of a terrorist, if one understands by terrorist somebody who wants to rectify social injustice by pressuring a government into action through the use of violence against the population. The overarching theme uh, is raised already in the opening paragraph, very famous in the description of Kohlhaas as one of the most honourable as well as one of the most terrible men of his age. And this is a paradox uh, that's underlined a few uh, lines later when it's stated that his sense of justice made him a thief and murderer. An excess of virtue leads to vice. So that poses the riddle for the reader. How can honour and a sense of justice lead to murder? 
and uh, does Kleist's text arouse sympathy, sympathy for the terrorist, or is the story suggesting that unbending idealism is terrible and should be rejected? Well, there are a lot of questions there, I think, in that um, statement. And I think one of the fascinations about Kleist's story is precisely that it shows how complex psychological motivation is. What we need to think about before we can really address this question of is Kulhas a terrorist is to think a little bit about the background of Kulhas and how he's presented in the text before he becomes this radicalised figure. It's very striking, I think, that Kulhas is really a fully paid up member of a kind of proto-bourgeois class. I mean, he is essentially a well-behaved businessman who makes a living trading horses. And he's totally dependent on the existence of a rule of law and order if he's to conduct his business successfully. And I don't think he's really any kind of proto-Marxist revolutionary in any shape or form. And I think in that, in that context, it's very important to note that, unlike most terrorists, he doesn't really want to overthrow the prevailing political structures. Indeed, I would argue it's quite the contrary. He wants really to restore the old structures to their former health. And his willingness to accept the punishment of death at the end of the story is a ringing endorsement of the status quo that was in existence prior to the, this invasion of his rights. It's true that Kohlhaas wants to restore a political system rather than abolish it or change it even. But nevertheless, uh, in spite of his intentions, uh, his actions have the effect of unhinging the government. And also he does kill a large number of innocent people in order to achieve this political aim. So I would say that does make him a terrorist, though not a Marxist one. You're quite right to point out that it's certainly true that he, um, uh, he, doesn't, he really does resort to some very extreme measures indeed. But I think there are two aspects here. I think there's a psychological aspect. I mean, I think that what Kleist is really trying to do here is to explore some of the social and psychological mechanisms that prompt such extreme behavior. And in that context, I'd, I'd come back to this point, how, how ordinary, really, Kohlhaas is. I mean, he's but that a, is, of course, exactly why it's such a fascinating story about the making of a terrorist. As we've got that time and again in Baden-Meinhof, it's the idealists who, uh, from idealism, can turn into violence. You can condemn this kind of violence. The problem is, of course, once it's unleashed this violence, it's very, very difficult to stop. And I would see the story as perhaps advocating a position of what can we do to prevent this kind of violence from being unleashed in the first place. And I think here um, what Clyde's story shows is that when human beings suffer such an obvious injustice and find that there's no prospect of their ever obtaining justice, they're really at grave risk of being radicalised because they no longer really have any faith in the judiciary and the prevailing structures of law and order. And I think, of course, as we all know, once, once individuals feel that they've got nothing left to lose, that risk of radicalisation is increased yet further. I think it's interesting, to, it's a very interesting point in the story when Kohlhaas speaks with Luther and Luther asks him, do you not perhaps regret having embarked on this violent quest for justice? And I think Kohlhaas's answer is very telling. He says, maybe or maybe not, he says. If I had known that it would take the heart's blood of my beloved wife, I might have done as your reverence suggests and not made a fuss of a bushel of oats. But now they have come to cost me so dear, I think the matter should take its course. And that demonstrates, I think, that for Kohlhaas, the turning point of the story really is the death of his wife, Lisbeth. The story is fantastic in portraying 
how somebody is made into a terrorist and to awaken sympathy because Kohlhaas takes such a long time before he takes any action and as you've outlined the personal cost uh, in all this involved. Uh, so uh, the reader is at that point um, quite sympathetic towards Kohlhaas but then um, as so often happens with Kleist, things take a momentum of their own and once he starts uh, being violent um, it develops uh, snowballs uh, quite out of proportion and at one point he styles himself as the emissary of the Archangel Michael and uh, he uh, gives a writ uh, which he claims uh, is given at the castle of Lützen, um, the provisional world government. And the narrator then says uh, there's some madness in there and there's more and more criticism as Kohlhaas then develops uh, this violence, getting from a handful of men to over 100 and uh, burning down uh, towns, killing people who have nothing to do with it. So um, there's the other side of the story too, the criticism of uh, an idealist turned radical. So seeking justice um, and the empathy created for that is one side of the story, but on the other hand, revenge and hubris are among the less appealing aspects of Kohlhaas, aren't they? Oh, I would agree. And of course, the dividing line between justice and revenge is always thin. But it is there, I think, and Kleist upholds that division. And of course, just how interconnected justice and revenge are is suggested by the English term retribution, a term that hovers somewhere between justice and revenge. For me, of course, the term justice usually implies that punishment is administered by a neutral agency, like a court, whereas in the case of revenge, the punishment has a much more personal element and is usually administered by the party who has been wronged. And, of course, Kohlhaas wants the Juncker in person to restore his horses back to their health. There is no doubt, I think, that, at least to begin with, Kohlhaas in his rage is certainly out for revenge, and he's determined that the Juncker should personally restore his horses to health, and in a clear act of hubris, he even goes as far as to argue that it's his right to exact revenge on his enemy, when he tells Luther that even the Lord did not forgive all his enemies. And of course, this unwillingness to forgive the Juncker means that he cannot receive communion, something that, as a devout Christian, he takes very seriously. But I think at the end of the story, this personalised aspect of revenge, I, for me, subsides because at the end of the story, he does receive communion, albeit from Luther's emissary, Jakob Freising. In this way, I think that Kleist signals that Kohlhaas's quest for justice cannot simply be dismissed as a misguided act of personalised revenge. But I think the fact that this original act does st stem from a desire for revenge also underlines the truth of Aristotle's observation in the Nicomachean Ethics that reason of its own moves nothing. And very little, I think, happens in human affairs without some form of personal emotional investment. I think that is uh, the crux of the story, that um, his uh, quest for justice uh, is justified and nevertheless the way he goes about it is wrong. And um, I think that's where um, Kleist is in this conundrum and uh, in order to even things out he puts in the gypsy figure. There's been a lot of criticism that in a story that uh, is so realistic, uh, so detailed, uh, he has this romanticised figure of a gypsy, a gypsy who can foretell the future. 
but this gypsy figure um, is the one who mediates uh, between the good and the bad in Kohlhaas. And of course, he has killed uh, a lot of innocent people, and that can't go unpunished, although why he did it uh, is understandable and, and has to be punished. So um, Kleist then uh, puts uh, that uh, in, into history um, by having the bad ruler of Saxony um, the, the, uh, the reader uh, would, of course, uh, at the time have known what happened to Saxony from uh, the 16th century to Kleist's time, the demise of Saxony. And the gypsy, for telling that demise, um, tells somebody who did something bad is ultimately punished by history. And Kohlhaas's uh, children, they thrive and um, go up in the world. So the, um, the good that Kohlhaas did is sort of um, with his children, but he has to pay the ultimate price. Oh, absolutely. And although many critics, Lukács in particular, hated this uh, inclusion of the gypsy episode, I think it's actually a masterstroke in the story because it adds a complete, as you say, a completely new dimension. But I think also structurally, it gives Kohlhaas a kind of get-out-of-jail-free card at the end of the story because he could play this and save his life, and of course he chooses not to do so. But uh, that also is interesting, uh, interesting on a psychological level because instead of using it uh, as get-out-of-jail-free, he uses it for yet another act of final retribution, swallowing uh, the capsule, looking the elector of Saxony in the eye and him fainting. Uh, you know, in in the very moment of his execution, he's got the last power over his uh, adversary. And I think it's very interesting that you used the word retribution there and not the word revenge, because I think, again, lot, many people have seen that as an act of revenge, and I don't really see it as an act of revenge, but I do see it, like you, as a kind of punishment. And I also see it as a demonstration of I value things and principles higher than my life. I could have saved my life by selling you this capsule, but I chose not to do it. And that's also a kind of lesson as well, I think, for the But you also have to remember what the gypsy said. Um, he said to the gypsy principal, the gypsy said, and the life of your children. Uh, and he puts his principal above caring for his children. Well, I would see it slightly differently. I think that in following those principles, he actually ensures their future. And that's what they... uh, he, he does uh, in an abstract way, but you know they have lost both their parents. Uh, their future is financially secured, and uh, you know they they have uh, him as a model there. But you know it's putting the principle above uh, the living human being. Well, all human beings die in the end, and we all have to live without our parents. And what Kulhas secures for them is, I think, a secure legal basis for them to continue their lives. But I think that's just an example of how these details of the story can divide people in, in all sorts of different ways and uh, the fascination of that ending. Mm. And ultimately, I think um, one of the functions of the story is uh, to warn governments uh, to govern wisely and justly and uh, to warn, uh, and with an eye to the French Revolution that's just happened, uh, if you let uh, injustice rule, then there is uh, an uprising. So a good government 
a reform government can prevent violent revolution or should prevent. So it's an argument uh, for better government. That there for me is the contrast between the Elector of Saxony and the Elector of Brandenburg because under the rule of the Elector of Saxony standards of justice have been allowed to decline to the point that even a well-behaved obedient citizen like Kohlhaas feels compelled to resort to force in order to secure justice. And of course you could argue that the Elector of Saxony is hardly an evil man but perhaps only a weak man whose character is most clearly reflected I think in that remark follow you rule the world and your throne is a pretty woman's lips. But of course weakness itself is, I think, very problematic here. Um, what also I think is very striking, especially for the rulers of the time, is how easy it is really for Kohlhaas to shake this state to its very foundations. I mean, with very few men, um, suddenly there is this huge crisis. And I think here this story must have been read in the context of the French Revolution and, as you say, and um, you, you know, do we want this to happen here? <laughs> Yes, very much so. And uh, if you uh, think of uh, the philosophers uh, who prepared the French Revolution, I mean, not knowingly, but sort of <laughs> uh, in effect, uh, Rousseau, uh, he ad actually argued for the right to resistance if the ruler broke uh, the social contract. And um, so you can see um, in this story set in the 16th century, it very much uh, discusses issues of the time after the French Revolution. And after the French Revolution, especially after the terror, um, where you've got this connection uh, between um, virtue in excess leads to vice, you know, Robespierre. Um, that uh, led a lot of people to think, how can we prevent uh, such a thing? Um, and the argument was very much the government must reform, the government uh, must be just, must listen to the people, or the consequences would be absolutely dire. And I think here we come back to this essential stance of Kohlhaas, that he doesn't want to revolutionise his society, he wants it to be restored to a state of health. And here I think we might also see the story in connection with the Prussian reform movement, because around 1806, 1807, this sort of period, you've got men like Stein and Hardenberg and Scharnhorst and Gneisenau, all men with whom Kleist I think was quite closely associated and I think supported basically, who embarked on a process of reform in the former states of the Holy Roman Empire. And saw really that a process of modernization and improvement was inevitable, especially if they were to avoid the kind of consequences that have been seen over the border. A third figure who Kohlhaas encounters is, of course, famously Martin Luther, who intervenes in affairs in an attempt to dissuade Kohlhaas from his violent course and to force him back into the confines of human order. Maybe, Ricardo, you could say a little bit about the presentation of Luther in the text, because he does play quite a major role and, of course, he expects to find a devil in Kohlhaas, but he does find somebody with whom he can actually have a rational discourse. He does, but um, the interesting thing, first of all, that is that uh, Kohlhaas and his wife are committed Lutherans, um, a new religion at the time, so it's very recent that Luther reformed the uh, church. The story is set in the middle of the 16th century, so Luther's still alive, the uh, Reformation uh, just a few decades old. And um, Luther famous for having challenged 
church authorities. Uh, in his thinking, uh, direct relationship to God, um, just out, ousting all other authorities. And that is uh, what uh, Kohlhaas adopts, this direct uh, relationship to God uh, without anybody else. But on the other hand, uh, Luther is also famous uh, for being politically very submissive to authorities. He, uh, he challenges uh, church authorities, but not political authority in the country. You should obey uh, your Landesherr, is Luther's take. And that's, of course, what he does do in this story. He is the one uh, who says to Kohlhaas um, that uh, the, the ruler doesn't know of Kohlhaas's case. And that's uh, the argument by which uh, he gets uh, Kohlhaas finally on board and Kohlhaas then submits his case to the ruler. And of course it's a lie. It's the age-old story that, uh, you know, if only your ruler knew, then he would do justice. Um, and uh, we know, of course, that this ruler isn't like that. But uh, so uh, the Luther in this story is politically conservative, and that is um, very aptly uh, captured here by Kleis. I think it's striking that we've spent a lot of time talking about wickedness, violence, justice, the pursuit of idealism. But one thing I think we mustn't lose sight of in this story is that it is very funny in parts. There are moments of great humour, I think, in the text. Yes, and, and great earthiness. Uh, Kleist has this amazing range between the most abstract uh, in philosophical terms and the most concrete. And the scene I find most humorous is um, when uh, the horses uh, are uh, brought to the marketplace uh, by Anaka and Kleist uh, and uh, the relevant uh, aristocracy are cited to come and view them and to verify are they these horses or not. And you can just imagine this confrontation, uh, these airy fairy aristocrats um, the idealist, strong Kohlhaas, uh, and then this Naka. The Naka, he couldn't be just more disrespectful. Uh, he pees in public uh, in front of all these people, and the way Kleist describes it is just absolutely hilarious, and everybody uh, is appalled that these noble people have to witness such uncouth acts in public and um, while it's very funny I also find it fascinating because it's one of these uh, Kleistian turning points of contingency because while previously um, the population was on Kohlhaas side that scene that humiliation by the knacker of the aristocracy by behaving in this disrespectful, uh, animal-like way, that turns the mood against Kohlhaas, and from then onwards, his fate goes downwards. Uh, I find that is one of the brilliant uh, ideas of Kleist, to show how something that was without anybody's, outside anybody's control, can have such devastating, lasting effects and do that in such a funny way. Absolutely. Something that's very striking about this story is that it's prompted a number of adaptations in the 20th century. All sorts of filmmakers and um, uh, authors have 
come to the story and used it as a kind of basis for a, for a new text. I mean, there are over a hundred adaptations, I think, in the 20th century of this story. And some of the best known, of course, are E.L. Dr. Rowe's Ragtime, which sets the story in the early part of the 20th century, late 19th century, with an Afro-American jazz pianist called Kohlhaas, who's um, taunted by uh, Irish immigrants in America. Schlöndorf famously made another film called A Man on Horseback. And of course, there's The Jack Bull, which sets the story in late 19th century Wyoming. None of these adaptations is really very successful. And in particular, I think, I would say that none of them really manages, for example, to engage with that element of humor that you've just pointed out. It shows how difficult it is, actually, I think, to adapt these prose works of Kleist for the stage and screen. And I think, as we've shown in our discussion, they have a degree of complexity, I think, that is very, very difficult to bring across in that format. Yes, and uh, at the same time, uh, they are complex but absolutely gripping. And um, I can only invite everybody to read the stories. Thank you very much, Sean, for this discussion, and uh, goodbye for now. Thank you.